Welcome to the Sadler Lectures podcast. Responding to popular demand, I'm converting my philosophy videos into sound files you can listen to anywhere you can take an MP3. If you like what you hear and want to support my work, go to patreon.com sadler. I hope you enjoy this lecture. In his essay, Bartleby or the Formula, Gilles Deleuze invokes a very interesting formula of his own, or we could say phrase, an expression, Melvillian psychiatry. And this comes about halfway through the essay. He says, we're in the process of melding together characters as different as Ahab, the captain searching for Moby Dick in that novel. And he says, yet does not everything set them in opposition to each other, Melvillian psychiatry constantly invokes two poles. And we're going to get to looking at that in just a moment. He calls these monomaniacs and hypochondriacs. And you know, this is coming from a book called Essays Critical and Clinical. And these are clinical terms developed within psychiatry. But it's kind of a funny thing to say, isn't it? Because there isn't psychiatry as such in the time of Melville. The psychoanalytic terms that Deleuze himself is going to bring in, that's a later theory. So is he reading backwards, as so many people are prone to do as literary critics, the psychoanalytic theory of their choice into previous literature? That's not actually what's going on with Deleuze, in part because he's also trying to undermine psychoanalysis as a rigid way of interpretation as well. I think before we look at these two important poles and then the other one that Deleuze brings up the prophet, we have to go backwards a little bit and look at what he calls identification and talks about as having a certain function there, which is actually going to lead him eventually to saying something about the American dream. An American dream, which is not that of having a car, a house, a refrigerator, good job, but a different kind of American dream, which he says the new identification of the new world, the trait, the zone, and the function. Before that, though, we go back to this discussion of identification, and he says, is there a relation of identification between the attorney and Bartleby? So is this a useful way of making sense out of these characters and what they represent or what they mean, what they have to teach us? And he says, well, okay, what is identification? When we use that term, and this is actually a really great place to bring up an additional point, there's a lot of terms, especially when it comes to literary theory or philosophy or their intersection, where we throw them around and people think they know what they mean, but unless we break them down, as Deleuze is doing here, into their parts and then put them back together, we often don't know what we're talking about. So Deleuze himself says, all right, what is identification? He says, what is this relation? In what direction does it move? Now he says most often, so he's not saying in every case, but most often, an identification seems to bring into play three elements which are able to interchange or permutate, right? So they're not interchanging necessarily in the sense that one is, is actually taking the place of the other in the sense of absorbing its function, although, you know, they can kind of veer in that direction, depending on what work we're looking at. Rather, they can change in what they are, and then a change in one typically is going to presage or produce a change in the other. 
So what are these three things? Well, we've got some sort of representation and he's going to use a couple different ways of talking about that. We have a subject. We'll talk about what a subject means in just a moment. And then we have this subject's attempt to do something with itself and the representation or image to harmonize them, to integrate them in some way. So let's talk about each of these in terms. The first one, a form, an image or a representation. Then he says two other things, a portrait, a model paradigm, right? So when we identify, we are picking out what it is we want to identify with, what we are identifying ourselves towards. And this could be a person. This could also be the notion of a function like, you know, Sartre's example of the waiter who's trying too hard to be a waiter and just a waiter. It could be the soldier who wants to stand at attention all the time or be a hard ass or things like that. There's some sort of idea, some sort of image there. Then he says a subject or at least a virtual subject. And he doesn't actually tell us that much about this, but we should unpack that. What does it mean to be a subject? It means that you have the capacity to some degree to self-determine, you have agency, you are driven by thoughts, feelings, emotions, drives, commitments, the, the effect of breaking your commitments, all, all those things belong to a subject. You're a subject, I'm a subject. Our fictional characters like Sherlock Holmes are subjects as well. That could be a virtual subject or in this case, Bartleby or the attorney, right? And then we have, he says, the subject's efforts to assume a form, to appropriate the image. So that, that sounds like it's absorbing the image, right? But appropriating the image, the next thing that he says gives us a better idea to adapt itself to this image and this image to itself. So I'll give you an example. You know, when I was a young man and getting into lifting weights, you know, there's a certain look that you put on, there's certain ways in which you lift the weights and you try to make sure that you're like conforming to that because you don't, you want to fit in and you want people to see you in a certain way, even though you actually, there's a, a non-coincidence between the ideal and you, right? And we can do this with all sorts of other things. You have a job, right? You need to be professional. What is professional? Professional is kind of a, a form of representation. And then you try to adapt yourself to that, even though kind of a screw up and not fitting in with this notion of professionalism uh, all that much. Uh, if you do succeed in it, you'll manage to truncate your, yourself as a human being and maybe turn yourself into something less than a subject. So he goes on and he talks about this as being mimetic, right? And he says, this is a complex operation that passes through all the adventures of resemblance and that always risks, now notice he uses two clinical terms here, falling into neurosis, right? Where you're desperately trying to become that thing or to seem to be that thing and it's not quite getting there. The neurotic never actually is completely happy with what's going on or narcissistic. You do think that you are that thing. You do think you are the center of the universe and you behave that way. And that's why you're such a jerk to everybody else around you. <laughs> you know, you're still maladaptive in that respect. So he talks about this as a mimetic rivalry and he says it mobilizes a paternal function in, in general. 
an image of the father par excellence and the subject is the son, even if the determinations are interchangeable. And this is something that goes on all the time, right? And it doesn't necessarily have to be your dad in the sense of the person who contributed the sperm to, to the egg or your dad in the sense of the person who raised you. It could be somebody else who has that paternal function as well, some sort of authority, somebody who is given the, the opportunity to tell you how you ought to be and to punish or reward and you try to... Uh, um, make that happen. And it doesn't necessarily have to be a father. It could also be a mother. It could also be somebody who's who's not connected with any sex in particular. We could imagine all sorts of alternate examples of this. But here we're talking about paternal function. Now, a little bit later, Deleuze says that in Melville's works, he says, many of Melville's novels begin with images or portraits and seem to tell the story of an upbringing under a paternal function. But one's, what ends up happening is this gets, this goes off track. It gets subverted. And it does so through Melville's own way of depicting this. And he says, we still have a process of identification. Rather than following the adventures of the neurotic, it has now become psychotic. A little bit of schizophrenia escapes the neurosis of the old world. And then he talks about bringing together three distinctive characteristics. And he's doing a little bit of sleight of hand, I would say, here, that will walk our way through. A little bit of misdirection, perhaps. So the first thing he says, in, in place of the form or representation or image, what we get is the formless trait of expression. What does that mean? There isn't an actual form. There is a kind of nothingness there, a thing that has yet to be worked out. We don't know what we're trying to model ourselves after, but we have an expression. And I prefer not to, I would prefer not to, is an example of that kind of expression, but we could have other expressions as, as well. So he goes on and he says, in the second place, there's no longer a subject that tries to conform to the image and either succeeds or fails. But we still do kind of have a subject, right? So that's why I've got subject here. And that subject, he says, instead of that, we have a, a zone. And he uses three terms here. Indistinction, indiscernibility, ambiguity. That seems to be established between two terms, as if they'd reached the point immediately preceding their respective differentiation, not a similitude, but a slippage, an extreme proximity, and an absolute contiguity, an unnatural alliance. Well, two terms. What two terms? There is still a subject there. Even though Deleuze is saying, ah, there's, there's, you know, we're replacing the subject. You still have a subject as one of those terms, but now you have this zone. And this is a zone, as he says, not of mimesis, imitation, trying to, you know, make one's way to the image and make the image oneself, but rather of becoming. And he uses as a prime example here, Ahab's identification with the whale. In striking Moby Dick, the whale, he strikes himself. Moby Dick is the wall shoved near with which he merges. So that's, you know, an antagonistic relation. Redburn renounces the image of the father in favor of the ambiguous traits of the mysterious brother. Pierre does not imitate his father, but reaches the zone of proximity where he can no longer be distinguished from his half-sister, Isabel, and becomes himself woman. So there's a lot of different modes of possible becoming here. And then he goes down a little bit and then he says, in the third place, so now we're actually 
getting a third thing. So what does that mean? Well, the zone is the subject and the subject is the zone, even though the subject is part of the zone. In the third place, he says, psychosis pursues its dream of establishing, now what? Uh, harmonization and adaptation of image to subject? No. Well, is it then just modeled after formless trait of expression? We got that on one side and a zone on the other side, and we're trying to reconcile them. No, it's something different. A dream of universal fraternity, he says, that no longer passes through the father, but is built on the ruins of paternal function, a function that presupposes the dissolution of all images of the father. So this, he says, you know, all things can transform into each other. The woman becomes a sister, the other man a brother. So this isn't just a, when, you know, Deleuze is using this term fraternity over and over again. It doesn't mean boys club, you know, no girls allowed or anything like that. It means a break down of this ordering function that he's calling the paternal function that sets everything into its proper place and then would allow like a orderly succession. Instead here, people are discovering who and what they are in relation to each other. And sometimes the results are very surprising, right? There has to be a certain kind of freedom to, to allow that. So identification becomes something different in what's happening here. And this is where he brings up the American dream, the new identification trait, zone, and function, right? And he talks about Melvillian psychiatry. He talks about two types at first, monomaniacs, Ahab, prime example of that. And in Billy Budd, Claggart would be another example. And then hypochondriacs, Billy Budd himself, Bartleby the Scrivener, some other characters as well. So he says, Melvillian psychiatry invokes two poles, monomaniacs, hypochondriacs, demons and angels, torturers and victims, the swift and the slow, the thundering and the petrified, the unpunishable because beyond all punishment and the irresponsible beyond all responsibility. So we've got these two very interesting types here. He goes on and he says, Ahab, Claggart, they're both breaking a pact, a law, an agreement. Ahab is supposed to pursue whatever whale comes in his way. Instead, he's like, we're going after that white whale. Forget all the other ones, right? Claggart, he's the master at arms. He's supposed to administer discipline equally. Instead, he focuses in on Billy Budd. And he does so out of envy, but also kind of perhaps love as well. He's not supposed to do that. And these are the people, the monomaniacs who, you know, monomania is you've got an object that you're driving after and everything else takes a, a back seat to it, no matter who gets hurt, no matter what gets broken on the way. And Deleuze calls these kinds of people those involved with metaphysical perversion. So it's not just an ethical perversion or an aesthetic perversion. It is a metaphysical perversion. The world that they're working in is the worse off for them in many respects. He also a little bit later calls them masters of reason. And this is a very interesting idea here. He talks about this new logic, right? And he tells us that there is no such thing as reason. It, it exists only in bits and pieces. And so the monomaniacs are masters of reason, which is why they're so difficult to surprise. But this is because theirs is a delirium of action because they make use of reason, make it serve their sovereign ends, which in truth are highly unreasonable. 
reasonable. So there's an irrationality and their use of reason is not just instrumental in the way that a bureaucrat might be, but they will use reason however. They're the ultimate bullshitters, really. They'll make arguments, but they don't believe in any of the arguments. They're just trying to get their thing. The hypochondriacs, the angelic types, he describes in a different way. He says that these people are creatures of innocence and purity, stricken with a constitutive weakness, but also with a strange beauty. They prefer a nothingness of the will rather than a will to nothingness. The monomaniacs have a will to nothingness. The hypochondriacs have a nothingness of the will. They can only survive by becoming stone, by denying the will and sanctifying themselves in the suspension. Such are Cyrano, Billy Budd, and above all, Bartleby, which is why he's bringing that up here. They're always being betrayed. He calls them angels or saintly hypochondriacs. And he also, in talking about reason, says that they are the outcasts of reason. So that's an interesting way to describe what's going on. They don't make use of the pretexts, the reasonings, the arguments that they could. And he says, they are outcasts of reason without our being able to know if they have excluded themselves in order to obtain something reason cannot give them. The indiscernible, the unnameable with, with which they will be able to merge. And then we have a third group that he calls the prophets. Says there exists a third type of character in Melville, the one on the side of the law, the guardian of the divine and human laws. So Ishmael and Moby Dick, Captain Vera and Billy Budd, the attorney and Bartleby all have this power, he says, to see. They're capable of grasping and understanding the beings of primary nature, the great monomaniacal demons or the saintly innocents. But they themselves have some ambiguity as well. Behind their paternal mask, they have a kind of double identification with the innocent towards whom they feel a genuine love. Also with the demon, because they break their pact with the innocent, they love each in their own manner and they, they betray. So they're unable, even though they're, they've got the law on their side and they're on the side of the law, to hold back the monomaniacs because they don't care about the law. They're going to do whatever the hell they're going to do, regardless of it. And the law ends up being, we could say, taking in into its web the hypochondriacs and they can't make adequate space for it. I mean, the captain in, in Billy Budd is definitely like enforcing the law. The attorney in Bartleby, the Scrivener, is actually trying to make a lot of room to try, you know, he's, he's like, let's think this through. Can't we make this work? And so there's a, a, a more nice approach, you could say, which is still, though, the paternal function. It's still a kind of charity or philanthropy, which then falls flat in the face of that particular hypochondriac. Who's going to get, you know, arrested and, and, and die in jail? Interestingly, Deleuze calls these prophets, witnesses, narrators, interpreters. They are the ones who themselves don't tie in with what he's going to call primary nature, which we'll talk about elsewhere. They are part of secondary nature, but they attest to it. They are within the stories giving us what's going on. They're, they're the ones communicating with us. Now, there's a problematic you know, when we talk about psychiatry, what is the point of psychiatry? Is it just to like come up with cool classifications? Oh, I'm a paranoiac. Oh, I'm a schizophrenic. Oh, I'm a this, I'm a this, I'm a this. No, ultimately there's supposed to be some sort of things getting better. 
or at least things not getting worse. And Deleuze identifies what he thinks Melville is up to. This problematic he talks about as liberating humanity from this paternal function. He says, what is the biggest problem haunting Melville's body of work? So he frames it, and again, we'll talk about this elsewhere, In uh, he frames it in terms of the original and secondary nature, the inhuman with the, with the human, but he also talks about um, the paternal function. He says that what Captain Vera and the attorney demonstrate is there are no good fathers. There are only monstrous, devouring fathers and petrified fatherless sons. If humanity can be saved, it will only be through the dissolution or decomposition of the paternal function. And then he talks about this moment where Ahab, invoking St. Elmo's fire, discovers that the father is himself a lost son and orphan, whereas the son is the son of nothing, of everyone a brother. And he says, as Joyce will say, paternity does not exist. It is an emptiness and nothingness. So, you know, if we can break free of the fascination that paternity and the paternal function exercises on us, then we can move on to something better, a kind of fraternity. Or, you know, we might just call this humanity because again, Deleuze, although he's using very gendered language, is it's clear here that it's not just brothers. He says, man is indeed the blood brother of his fellow man and, and woman, his blood sister. We'll conclude this by something really interesting that Melville is saying, or rather Deleuze is saying. According to Melville, this is the community of celibates, drawing its members into an unlimited becoming. A brother, a sister, all the more true for no longer being his or hers, since all property, all proprietorship has disappeared. A burning passion deeper than love, since it no longer has either substance or qualities, but traces a zone of indiscernibility in which it passes through all intensities in every direction, extending it, it all the way to homosexual relation between brothers and passing through the incestuous relation between brother and sister. Uh, this is the way Deleuze figures it. And he asks, how can this community be realized? I mean, and there's a tension there, right? If you're going to talk about homosexual sexuality or incest, you're, you're thinking about things in sexual terms, but he's also talking about this as the community of celibates, those who are, you might say, renouncing their sexuality in order to open up a greater scope of freedom. I don't think that this is completely resolved in here, but at least it gives you an idea about what's supposed to be happening. Deleuze clearly thinks that this other kind of identification is preferable to, you know, the psychotic identification, preferable to the neurotic or whatever else we're going to, we're going to call it kind of identification, the square identification, you might say. And the, the goal is to get past these three types in a certain way, or create a space in which the hypochondriacs could continue to exist and maybe the prophets could be reconciled. We don't really know what we're supposed to do with the monomaniacs though. There's, there's never a resolution of that here in this work. We just know that they are the proverbial bull in the china shop wherever they happen to go. So that is what's going on here in terms of Deleuze's appropriation of clinical language and concepts and his, his notion of Melvillian psychiatry. Special thanks to all of my Patreon supporters for making this podcast possible. You can find me on Twitter at Philosopher70, on YouTube at the Gregory B. Sadler channel, and on Facebook on the Gregory B. Sadler page. Once again, to support my work, go to patreon.com Sadler. Above all, keep studying these great philosophical works.